Amen, amen, amen. Good to see you all tonight. It's, uh, it's a delight to be with you once again. This is session five of Understanding Bible Prophecy, and uh, I look forward to this every week. I'm glad that you're here. It demonstrates your love, not just for prophecy, but by definition, the Word of God, because this is a prophetic book, as we've said, 40% of your Bible is predictive prophecy, and so I, I'd say that it's pretty important to, uh, to take a look at that. Why are we doing all of this? Why have we embarked on this study? Is it just to pack your head with a bunch of information? Is it so we can win at, you know, Bible Jeopardy? Uh, no. No. Uh, the first reason that we are studying what we're studying is because the content of what we're looking at on a weekly basis is found in the pages of this book called the Bible. God put it here, and therefore it is worth our time, and it's incumbent upon us to study this. And I would add to that that there are important principles that we must get our heads around in order to understand the totality of God's Word, especially if you have any interest in prophetic literature. If you want to ever study a book like Revelation, you've got to understand a few things. There's some things you've got to adopt, some interpretive skills. You've got to learn to let Scripture interpret itself. You've got to uh, understand some Old Testament concepts like who is Israel in God's eyes? What is the difference between Israel and the church? Uh, what are these things called covenants? Uh, who institutes those covenants? Uh, how many covenants are there? What are the different kinds of covenants? Uh, what were the covenants that God established with, with the likes of David, with the likes of Abraham? And uh, what are the ages of God? How does God govern man differently across different periods of time? And when it comes to David and, and that covenant, uh, this person that God uh, told David would be on his throne and rule in an eternal fashion, who was that? Uh, what is the title for that individual? We talked about that last week, and we, we determined that that would be the Messiah and that Jesus of Nazareth is the lone person in all of human history that meets all of the criteria to, to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem according to prophecy. And so we've looked at all of these aspects. We've looked at near fulfillment of prophecy, far fulfillment of prophecy. We've looked at prophecies that have been fulfilled in our time or prior, we've looked at prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. They are yet future. And so all of this is valuable, and it all points to the validation of God's Word as something that is true, that is authentic. And in our study so far, we have kind of camped out in uh, the age of the prophets during what is called the Babylonian captivity. And we've looked at the writings of a guy named Daniel and a guy named Ezekiel primarily, and Ezekiel gave us kind of a far future view of, of what will happen to Israel, that God will resurrect them one day, and they will return uh, first to the land, as, as is happening right now, and they will return not only to the land, but they will return to their Messiah. And then we looked at the prophecies of Daniel. We saw uh, the, all of the world empires, the Gentile powers, uh, some that have come and gone, many which were future to Daniel, uh, one of which is going to be future for you and I. And tonight we're going to return to the book of Daniel. We're going to look at a very, very important prophecy, possibly the most important one in all of your Bible. Uh, but one of my favorite movie series of all time is uh, the Indiana Jones series. I love Indiana Jones. I think the final one is coming out this summer. You know, Harrison Ford's only about 105. And so uh, 
he's either going to crack the whip or he's going to crack a hip, one of the two. But uh, my generation, when I was nine, I wanted to be an archaeologist because of Indiana Jones. I think my generation is the first generation where nine-year-olds wanted to be an archaeologist. And it's all because of Indy, you know. And, but one of my favorite things about those movies is that when Indy sets out to, to make a big archaeological discovery, the first thing that he's got to do, he's got to unlock or decipher some other puzzles before he makes the big find. You know, there, there are some initial gauntlets that he's got to run through to get to the big discovery. Well, if the book of Revelation is a big discovery, and it is, because it is the, the wrapping up of human history, you see. It, it is very literally the revelation of Jesus Christ as he comes to rule in a physical sense on the earth. If that book is to truly be uncovered and discovered and understood, the prophecy that we're going to start looking at tonight is absolutely vital for you to get your head around. And this is in Daniel chapter 9, and it's called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. Now, how many of you have ever heard of the 70 Weeks Prophecy? You've heard it before tonight, before you saw it on your sheet. You've heard of it. Now, how many of you got it all figured out? Well, that's a bummer. I was going to ask one of you to come up here and to take over, but that's fine. I'll, uh, I guess I'll, I'll do this. But before we get into that... We're going to go back from Daniel, and I want to look at a couple of prophets that predate Daniel, that predate Ezekiel. Now, you remember I've, I've talked about the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was the prophet in Jerusalem in the years leading up to the Babylonian captivity, and this was the guy that warned the king, warned the people, you better turn from your ways, God's going to judge you, he's going to send the Babylonians in here. His warnings went unheeded, and of course, there was judgment. He had to sit and watch his city burn. You can only imagine Warning your own country. and Can you imagine seeing America just crumble and having to watch that? It would, it would affect you deeply. You would weep. And that's what Jeremiah was called, the weeping prophet. And so he warned them for years. He gave them object lessons. He gave them vivid messages about what would happen if they didn't repent. And, and his warnings, as I said, went unheeded. But after all was said and done, his prophecies, his writings lived on. And so I want to show you uh, the amazing insight that God gave Jeremiah because this is going to set up what Daniel is going to start to talk about. So in Jeremiah chapter 25, it says this in verse 9. It says, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Now that blows me away. Here's this godless, well not godless, he's got many gods. He's a pagan king and God calls him my servant. Astounding. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. And drop down to verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and all these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. And if you're following along in your Bible, I want you to underline this phrase right here. Seventy years. Seventy years. And then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And so, Jeremiah prophesies about not only the destruction of, uh, and the enslavement of, 
of, Jeru- of, of, of Israel in Babylon, but he also gives an indication as to how long that would last. Now, I want you to look with me in chapter 29 of Jeremiah. In verse 10 it says, For thus says the Lord, When <laughs> 70 years, and you can underline that, are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Israel, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And so the weeping prophet gets to share a little bit of good news. And that's kind of nice for a prophet to get to share something hopeful. They didn't get to do that all that much. And that's why a lot of them got killed because people didn't want to hear the prophets. They don't like to hear pastors sometimes, as it turns out. I haven't been killed yet. That's good. Uh, but in, in verse 11, you, you, might, you might recognize this verse. I bet this is familiar to you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Does that sound familiar? Have you seen that embroidered on a pillow? Have you, have you seen that on the cover of a journal, a prayer journal or something at the Christian gift shop? He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back, it says it again, to the place from which I sent you into exile. And so in your notes, the prophecies of Jeremiah foretold the duration, the duration of the captivity in Babylon. Okay? That's a very important thing to set up where we're going to go in Daniel tonight. Because also in your notes, how long did he indicate that duration would be for? 70 years. That's how long they're going to be in captivity. God said it before they even left Israel. So Jeremiah prophesies about Israel's enslavement and then about the length of time and the restoration to the homeland. So with all of that in mind, before we kind of dive in, tear this up a little bit, would you pray with me? Lord, just bless our time in your word tonight. I I, I pray that we would truly be able to understand this, God. This is a a daunting task to tackle, the the 70 weeks prophecy. It's going to take a couple weeks to really get our arms around this, God, but we do need your spirit, and we do need your insight, God. And so would you clarify this for us? Help us to see so much more than just a a load of information, God. We don't want to just be receptacles for data. We want to be marveling at who you are, at what you've done, at the precision and the accuracy with which you have presented your scripture to us freely. And we ask your blessing upon our time in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Daniel now. We're in Daniel chapter 9. And here's what he says in verse 2. He starts out, In the first year of his reign, whose reign? Darius, Darius, however you pronounce that, right? Uh, If you recall, he comes in under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire, and then after Nebuchadnezzar dies, what happens? Medo-Persia comes in, they conquer Babylon. And so Daniel has been under two different kings, Nebuchadnezzar and now this guy, Darius. And he goes on, he says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, in the books, the number of years according to the word of the Lord to who? To Jeremiah the prophet. The number of years presented to Jeremiah must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. All right, what has Daniel been reading? 
What we just read together, everything I read to you in, Dan- in Jeremiah 25 and 29, Daniel's reading it in the books. He's got the scrolls of Jeremiah. I don't know if he grabbed them before he left Jerusalem and went into exile or if he got permission or somebody else supplied them, but he's been reading the writings of Jeremiah. Now, this is not the first time he's ever read Jeremiah. Uh, He studied probably under Jeremiah. He had known what the prophet said. Daniel is an old man at this point. He certainly read these books. But now Daniel's been in captivity for like 68, 69 years. So you think that this might be resonating with him right about now? He's reading, says 70 years. He's like, well, hey, how long have I been here? He's like, whoa, 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 hey, hey, it's almost time to blow this popsicle stand. We're going to be getting out of here pretty soon. And so he senses they're very close to the time of restoration. And not only does he have Jeremiah uh, and his writings to back that up, he's got access to some other prophetic writings. I want you to look with me at Isaiah. Isaiah predates Jeremiah. Now watch what Isaiah says in uh, chapter 44, verse 28. It says, I am the Lord. Who says of Cyrus, now here's another historic name that is referenced. Jeremiah mentions Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah, long before, mentions this guy, Cyrus. Uh, who is this? Well, I've, I've referenced Cyrus before in here a couple weeks ago. We talked about a man named Cyrus the Great, a Persian king. Here's what Isaiah says of him. Um, God, through the prophet, calls Cyrus my Shepherd. So Jeremiah, according to that prophet, God says, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. Now God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd directs and guides the sheep. He brings the sheep home. Who are the sheep? Israel is the sheep. He, Cyrus, is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings and to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So we got the prophecies of Jeremiah talking about the enslavement of the Jews, the restoration to the land. Now we've got in your notes the prophecies of Isaiah even before that foretelling the means of rebuilding Jerusalem. So they're coming home. When they left, city was in shambles. Here's a prophecy where it's not in shambles. And in your notes, God's instrument for rebuilding Jerusalem would be this guy, Cyrus the Great. Now that's profound. There's over 600 examples in Scripture of prophecy that has already been confirmed. That means that we can look, we can see when it was prophesied, and then in history we can point to a time when it was fulfilled. And this is one of those times. And it's really an an incredible prophecy when you read it because at the time that that Isaiah wrote that, the the Jews of Jerusalem might have thought he was crazy. Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. It's fully intact. What are you talking about? It doesn't need to be rebuilt. It, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not messed up. And by the way, who is Cyrus? There's, no, there's nobody by the name Cyrus here. What are you talking about? 100 years after he wrote this is when Nebuchadnezzar rolls into town, destroys the city, destroys the temple. And it would be uh, after that, in 537 B.C., that Cyrus of Persia is going to issue a decree that the city, or at least the temple, would be 
rebuilt. And we've got a cylinder called the Cylinder of Cyrus. It's a stone cylinder from Persian history. It's got the records of of the Medo-Persian Empire on there. And it confirms that is exactly what happened historically. And so you see prophecy fulfilled in history. Wonderful validation of this thing called the Word of God. And yet there are still skeptics attempting to explain the Bible away. There are always people. Folks, there are even people that call themselves Christians that try to explain away the Bible. Does anybody ever make the mistake of turning on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or National Geographic or whatever and you stop because you've seen there's a show, it's about the Bible and you stop and you watch it for a bit because, you know, you love the Bible and pretty soon you realize I've made a horrible mistake. These people are just trying to, you know, debunk it and all of this stuff, trying to explain it away. I was watching a documentary not that long ago, maybe a year or two ago, about, uh, uh, about the Egyptian bondage of Israel. And I was kind of encouraged at first because they were saying that it, it actually happened. There's a lot of people that dismiss the Exodus. They don't think the Jews were ever down there. And this program was saying, no, no, they were there. They were there, and here's, here's how we can prove that. And I thought, well, this is cool. So I gave it a shot. But then they started trying to explain all the miracles all the plagues of the book of Exodus, and they, they, they gave, you know, logical explanations. They say, well, you know, the plagues, what happened was there was a volcanic eruption down there, and it sent all this ash and soot up into the sky, blacked out the sky, you know, and that's why it was dark in the land. There was darkness. And then, and then the soot fell on a concentrated swamp area, and that sent all the locusts from the swamp into Egypt, And when all the locusts were in Egypt, well, then the frogs came out to eat the locusts, you know. And then the frogs started to secrete something from their back in the water, and it turned the water red. And so that looked like blood. And they just had an answer for everything, all of this nonsense. And uh, these same types of people take the book of Isaiah, and they say, well, you know, Isaiah could not have known about Cyrus. So there must be a logical Explanation. So there's a theory that Isaiah, that prophetic book, uh, they've got a theory called the Deutero-Isaiah theory. They say there was a second Isaiah. Deutero means second. So they think that the real prophet Isaiah may have written the first 39 chapters, but from 40 on would be somebody much, much later. That's how he knows about Cyrus and Persia. And so then he incorporates it into the book. And they try to explain it that way. So this isn't in your notes, but I put it on the screen here. How do we know? That Isaiah, one guy, wrote this book and prophesied all of this stuff. And the answer in in the short term is this, that that many reputable scholars reject the whole Deutero-Isaiah theory because there is, one reason is there's a consistent writing style. There's a consistent writing style throughout the book. There's a familiarity on the part of the author with Israel. He's not coming from a Persian or Babylonian perspective. And furthermore, Jewish tradition uniformly attributes this book to one man. There is no discrepancy about that. But one of the big reasons that we can trust the book of Isaiah is the Dead Sea Scrolls. You heard of those? So 1947, in Qumran, uh, part of Israel, down by the Dead Sea, you got a Bedouin shepherd boy. He's down there. He's probably, I don't know, he's probably my son's age, and he's probably doing what my son would do, which is throwing rocks. And he's chucking rocks up in these caves uh, up high on the cliffs there, trying to see if he can get a rock in there. And he does, and he hears some breakage. And so he goes up to investigate, and he finds all these clay pots. 
and all these scrolls. And, and uh, scholars would come and excavate and they would study these things. And it contained nearly the entire Old Testament, including an intact scroll of the book of Isaiah from beginning to end. And I've seen this scroll in person in Jerusalem at the Shrine of the Book. You can go there and you can look at it. And it is, it's the oldest copy of Isaiah that we've got. And one thing you notice is there is no division between chapter 39 and chapter 40. It's just one continuous column of text all the way through. Uh, uninterrupted one author is what the evidence shows. So we can take that uh, at face value. And uh, as we speak of this guy that Isaiah mentioned, Cyrus, some of you have noted or might note that Cyrus doesn't make any appearance in the book of Daniel. So if Daniel is in Babylon when the Persians come in, how come he doesn't mention Cyrus? He mentions Darius. Who's that? Who is Darius? If Cyrus is the king of Persia, who is Darius? Well, here's one possibility in your notes. Uh, Darius and Cyrus, same person. That's one possibility. Some have uh, pontificated about that. We see the name Darius a couple places in Scripture. This is the first place that we meet him in Daniel. There were multiple guys named Darius in Persian history. There was a Darius II. There's Darius the Great. This, is, this guy is referred to by Daniel as Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede. Medo-Persia was a co-regency, so there were the, the Medes and the Persians. Could Darius the Mede have been Cyrus? Don't know. Was Cyrus a Mede? Was he a Persian? I don't have the answer to that. But this is one possibility. Another possibility, maybe more likely, is that Darius, in your notes, was a general ruling under Cyrus. Okay? Uh, kind of concurrently in Babylon with Cyrus king over the whole empire, Darius over Babylon. Certainly a possibility. Uh, if you recall, we talked about Alexander the Great. He had four generals that did things like this for him. But nonetheless, a historic figure here. Uh, we see prophecy about Cyrus elsewhere in Scripture. Second Chronicles 36 says this, verse 22, Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And so this is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah, and we see it recorded in Second Chronicles. And it says that it might fulfill prophecy. And I just love that it points that out because all of this is to honor the word of the Lord. It all serves his purpose. And it goes on to say that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So I want you to understand what's happening. God prompts this pagan Persian king to do what? In his own words, build a house for the Lord, for Yahweh. Just an amazing thought. This guy worshipped a whole pantheon of gods. Okay? And yet, he is stirred up by the true God to rebuild the temple for Yahweh, for Jehovah. That's, that's just a fascinating concept. And he says, whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord God be with him. Let him go up. And so not only is he going to rebuild the temple, he is releasing the Jews, according to this decree, to go back to Israel. And that is, that is in keeping with the prophecies of Isaiah. This book is true. 100% true. And so 
that is, that is the story there. Now, Daniel knows, according to Jeremiah, that the duration of their stay is to be how long? 70 years. All right, now, if God's going to start the countdown with the first deportation, because you remember, Daniel went out in the first wave. There was a second wave that Ezekiel was a part of, but the first wave, okay, that's where you want God to start counting, right? Because that means they're going to be done quicker. So if, that is that, if that's when God started counting, that means we're, we're close. We're close. He also knows from Jeremiah 29 that the restoration will happen when what, what happens, this restoration will happen when the people do what? According to Jeremiah, when they seek me with all their heart. Okay? So if you're Daniel and you've been there about 68, 69 years and you know prophetically, chronologically that the time of restoration is upon you and you know that that it will only occur when the people seek God with all their heart, according to the prophet. If you know those things, and you're Daniel, what do you do? You, you pray. You hit your knees. You crank it up a notch. And that's what we see. Look at Daniel 9, verse 3. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. His prayer life gets hardcore. Your prayer life ever get hardcore? I think we need to do some praying right now. Because in your notes, Daniel knows there has to be a spiritual awakening that precipitates the end of the captivity. Do you think we could use a spiritual awakening right here in our country? Well, we better pray for it, huh? We better ask to be a part of it, huh? Absolutely. So, in seeking to understand the times... And to be prepared for the future, Daniel is going to do two things. I'm going to show you in your notes. Number one, what's he doing? We see him studying the scriptures to understand the times. All right? I hope that's one reason you're here tonight. That's number one. And then number two, he is praying, repenting, and seeking God. Okay? The effect that prophecy has on Daniel is one of repentance and prioritization of his time prophecy is not a hobby to Daniel okay I know some people prophecy eschatology that's a hobby for them uh, Daniel's not an eschatology buff it's not just his thing it's not just something that he does for leisure this is real life stuff for Daniel uh, he recognizes the implications of it all and this is what prophecy is meant to do that's why it's not a niche thing 40% of your Bible, not a niche, okay? It, it's not just this ancillary optional thing that if you're, int- if you're intrigued by such things, then, then you study it. No, no, it's important to God. And uh, we understand the times by reading God's word. That doesn't mean that we correlate everything that we're reading and we look and watch the evening news and say, well, there's the Antichrist, okay? Or, or, or you know, this, this vaccine mandate, that's the mark of the beast, no. That's not, that's not what we're here to do. Studying prophecy is to draw you closer to the word of God and to deepen your understanding. And it's to cause you to pray. It's to cause you to confess and repent and to seek the Lord. That's what it did for Daniel. And I also want you to see in your notes that it's clear that Daniel relies on a literal interpretation of prophecy. 
a literal interpretation. How do you know that? I want you to look at verse 1 again. 70 years. How do you think Daniel is interpreting that phrase, 70 years? He reads that in Jeremiah. Does he interpret that symbolically? No, he interprets it as 70 years. He's interpreting it literally. Uh, We've got a prophet, Daniel, who is interpreting another prophet, Jeremiah, in a literal fashion. And yet amazingly, we've got countless theologians and commentators on the Bible who pull these symbolic numbers out of a hat and they impose them onto Scripture uh, when it's not there at all. And they try to read into the Bible and, and force figurative language and concepts onto Scripture when they just need to start by taking it at face value. And they, they do this because they come from different theological backgrounds or they've got a certain agenda or something like that. But Daniel, he, he takes it at face value. He goes from verse 3 to verse 19 and he prays. He prays. And in verse 20, he gets an answer. And there are three perspectives and three persons represented in this answer. So in verse 20, we're, we're going to see in your notes, first of all, Daniel's circumstances. Verse 20 says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, that's his circumstance, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. So here's Daniel. He's in exile. He's far from his home. He is pleading with the Lord. What is his, uh, what is his preoccupation with? It's with the purposes of God. His circumstances uh, he, is, he is rooted in the purpose of God despite his circumstances. And so he gets on his face, not because of his own plight, but for the purpose of God regarding the people of God. That's number one. Number two, Gabriel's coming. So you got Daniel's circumstances, you got Gabriel's coming. Now you know who Gabriel is. We've been introduced to him before. This is one of two angels that we know by name, other than Lucifer, of course, in Scripture. Michael, Gabriel. Verse 21, Daniel says, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision of the first, came to me in swift flight. So he's already in, encountered this angel before. We, we studied uh, the prophecy. Uh, he, Daniel's vision of the four beasts, the ram and the goat. Gabriel was involved in that section of scripture. And he, Daniel is here now and he is praying. And while he is praying, here comes Gabriel. Doesn't take long for an angel to get to earth from heaven, apparently. He moves fast like lightning and he comes with an answer. And he says, He came at the time of the evening sacrifices. Verse 22, He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you. And I just love the subtext here. Uh, here you are, you're praying, you're on your knees, you're, you're on your face before God, and a word goes out. In the angelic realm, a divine call, and it comes, Gabriel says, to me. And I came as quick as I could. I just love thinking about the angelic realm. You just imagine that with me right now? That here's Gabriel, and, and someone hearkens to him that there's a prophet on his knees. You need to go to him, Gabriel. And so he, he rushes to the very coordinates of this prophet of God, Daniel, as he's seeking the Lord. And he comes and he says, for you are greatly loved. Man, don't you need to know that? Can you imagine how Daniel needed to hear that? 
And to hear that from an angel. Therefore, he says, consider the word and understand the vision. In other words, Gabriel, uh, Daniel, don't miss this. Listen, okay? You, you called, the Lord answered, okay? I've come all the way from heaven, bro. Don't miss this. If you get anything, get this. And this is number three, God's communication. God's communication. You got Daniel's circumstances. You got Gabriel's coming. You got God's communication. This is the message. This is the communique that Gabriel brings from the Lord to the prophet. And so Daniel's fasting and praying, and Gabriel comes with an answer. And the most incredible prophecy ensues right here. And it goes like this. It starts in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, that's the setup for this prophecy. This is the 70 weeks prophecy, and it is a classic prophecy, and it's one that you should all get your heads around and seek to understand. Why? There's a few reasons. Number one, because it defends a literal understanding of prophecy. It defends a literal understanding. There's nothing metaphorical in here. Okay? Uh, lots and lots of people try to explain prophecy away metaphorically. This is very, very literal. We start with the face value of the text. People ask me, how do you study the Bible? Well, one, one thing I could share with you is I start by taking it at face value. Okay? You say, are you saying that there's no symbolism, no figurative language in Scripture? No, not what I'm saying. I'm certainly not saying that there's nothing like that in prophecy. There is. But you don't start assuming that. You with me? When you study prophecy, you start with the literal, plain sense. You got me? When you get to figurative language, guess what? You'll recognize it. You'll recognize it. If I come in and I say, man, it is raining cats and dogs out there. Well, you know I don't literally mean that Fido and Fluffy are bouncing off the pavement out there, okay? Now, if I come in and I go, man, there are hailstones falling out of the sky. Well, that, that could be literally true. That, that is probably not figurative. And you know why you can tell the difference? Because God gave you this marvelous thing called a brain. I assume you all have one. And so when we hear figurative language, we recognize it. We recognize it, okay? And if we don't, God's not going to let us be confused. He's going to explain it, and often he does. In Scripture, he'll tell us what things represent. But you don't impose uh, 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 your own understanding or idea about what something might represent. You let the Scripture speak for itself. You start with the literal. Number two, this prophecy is important because it presents the chronology of the history of Israel. Okay, and that is part of the literality of this thing. So verse 24 is the overall perspective. And so we're going to break that down. And it deals with the chronology of the history of Israel. So let's just kind of look at it piece by piece. Uh, he, says, he says, you know, here's what is decreed. What is decreed? What's the first thing that is decreed? How, what, what does he say? Seventy weeks. 70 weeks. What is that? In your notes, this is a period of time 
70 weeks. That's a period of time. Now, what are those weeks exactly? Are they what you and I think of? Sunday through uh, Friday? Is that, or Saturday, rather? Is that, is that what we're talking about here? We have a Western mindset. So you say, well, I thought you said this was literal. It is, but you've got to understand the culture, too. Okay? So there's 70 weeks. So we'll get into that. We'll explain what that is. But just suffice to say, it's a period of time. That's what's decreed. Now, who decreed it? In your notes, God decreed it. How do we know that? Because the phrase decreed pertains to authority. Who has all authority? God has all authority. So this relates to a divine, sovereign plan. God controls all future events. Okay? So he has pulled out of history a 70-week, whatever that means, period of time. And with that period of time, he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish with his people, Israel, okay? Now, that leads us to this. What is the decree regarding? He says 70 weeks are decreed for your people. Whose people? Daniel's people. What ethnicity is Daniel? He's a Jew, okay? So that means that this is about Israel. It's about Israel. It's about your people, Israel, and your holy city. What city is that? Uh, it's not Elon, okay? It's not Burlington. Uh, it's, it's Jerusalem, the holy city. Amen, all right. And so it's got to do with the Jews and with their city. This is not about the Gentiles. We spent a lot of time talking about the times of the Gentiles. Went through a whole passage of scripture that was written in Aramaic, if you recall. That's the language of the Gentiles. This is in Hebrew, and it's for Daniel's people, Daniel's holy city. So it's about the Jews. And so we need to know that because when we get to the second part of this prophecy, we're going to be into the tribulation period. Okay? And this is important because you need to understand that the tribulation deals heavily with Israel. If you don't understand the purpose of the tribulation and how it relates to Israel, you're going to be confused as a termite and a yo-yo. All right? And also, this is going to play into when we talk about the, the rapture and the timing of the rapture. It has everything to do with this prophecy and the purpose of the tribulation. All right? Now, in your notes, I've given you a chart. There's a chart. And it, it shows us the sixfold purpose for the 70 weeks prophecy. I've already read part of verse 24. What is it? It tells us. And we're going to break this down. So... Uh, this is largely printed on your thing, so you don't have to write so much. Because I know the space is hard to get your pen to write that tiny sometimes. So I tried to put as much as I could in there. I think I missed one. You'll have to cram that in. But to start, the first purpose, number one, is to finish the transgression. What does that mean? It means, in your notes, to restrain sin in general. What or who is it that restrains sin? Well, that's the Holy Spirit, my friends. That is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, is the restraint of evil. A lot of people don't realize that, but whatever this prophecy is, it's going to serve to pave the way for the restrainer to come. That's number one. Number two, according to verse 24, it's to put an end to sin. To put an end to sin. Not only is this going to restrain sin in general, it's going to break the power of sin. Through what? Through the cross. Through the cross. That's what broke the power of sin is Christ's sacrifice. Resulting in the accessibility of the Holy Spirit. Uh, last year at Easter, my, my son and I, we watched Passion of the Christ. 
He'd never seen it, so we watched that movie, The Passion of the Christ. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, if you've seen it, you know, but it, it's all in Aramaic. It's all in Aramaic. I don't know if my son knew that because he's like, Dad, you, you forgot to turn the English on. It's, you know, I go, no, no, <laughs> this is in Aramaic. And at the end, Jesus on the cross unleashes that phrase, to telestai, which is an Aramaic phrase, means what? It is finished, except Mel Gibson used accomplished, which I, I liked. I liked that, that rendering of to telestai. It is accomplished. It is achieved, Okay. It is, sin has been defeated here. And then number three in your notes, to atone for iniquity is part of this sixfold purpose, meaning to make a covering for sin through the blood of Christ. Some versions say to make reconciliation. In the original language, it's the same word used when Noah uh, covers the ark with pitch to seal it, right? This means God has covered through the atonement, by the blood of Christ, he has covered our sin. No leakage, nothing getting out there, all right? So once those first three purposes are achieved, then number four, God will then bring in everlasting righteousness, according to verse 24. Meaning, this prophecy will allow for righteousness that is not of this world. This is, this is an eternal righteousness. Uh, there is a righteousness never before seen or experienced, as righteous as you are in the sight of God, you have not experienced the fullness of righteousness that you will one day in the presence of God when you stand before him in glory, all right? And then number five, God will seal up the vision and the prophet. What does that mean? What in the world? It means that, that, that this, this fulfillment will see to it that there's no more need for prophecy. The day will come when there will be no more prophecy. Won't need it. And uh, we won't, like I already believe there's no prophecy in the sense of fresh, new revelation. I think once the canon of scripture was completed, we're not getting a new word from the Lord, okay? I don't believe in that, all right? I don't believe that somebody's a receptacle and hears the voice of God because if that is the case, in, in terms of fresh, new revelation, never before uttered, you better have some blank pages at the back of your Bible. God's word is complete, all right? So there are, there are prophets today in the sense that they declare and proclaim what God has spoken in the word, his complete, perfect word. All right? So I already believe in that, but the day is also coming when you're, you're not going to need to read your Bible. You know when that day is coming? When Christ himself is reigning from Jerusalem. Because here's what Isaiah says in chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills. This is in the millennial kingdom. And all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways. Okay? And that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will be there in person. He will speak it. We will receive it. No Bible study anymore. You're going to have Jesus. You're going to have Jesus. That's awesome. In the flesh. You say, I got Jesus. In the flesh. All right? That's the kingdom. He will teach us himself. And then number six, it's to anoint a holy place. A most holy place. What is that? Well, in your notes, and you can fill this in because I think I, I didn't include this in your notes. This means to build the millennial temple 
which, by the way, is the greatest ever to be on the earth. If you go to Israel right now in Jerusalem and you go up to that Temple Mount, there is no temple up there. There's a mosque. There's a Dome of the Rock. There's no temple. You know why? It was destroyed. It was never rebuilt. So the first temple, built by Solomon, had the glory of God. That was the greatest of all physical temples. But then the people disobeyed. Babylon comes in. Nebuchadnezzar destroys it. After 70 years in exile, they come back. They rebuild it. Guy named Zerubbabel. The people are like, eh, it's all right, you know. Certainly didn't have the glory. Later on, Rome comes in. They install this half-Jewish uh, interloper by the name of Herod. He's a great builder. He, he wants to get the favor of the people, and he knows that the temple's important to them, so he renovates that thing, makes it beautiful. It is a gorgeous building. Still no glory. But they call that the, sec- the second temple. They, they just kind of pretended Zerubbabel's never happened. And Herod's, that's, that's the temple. Look at it. Oh, wow. No glory. And then the Romans come in, they destroy it. There's been no temple since. There will be another temple in the tribulation. The Antichrist will form a treaty with Israel. We're going to talk about that next week. They will rebuild the temple. Where will that mosque be at that time? Don't know. Don't know. I've got some ideas. Okay, but there will be another temple during the tribulation. Of course, it will be desecrated. By the end of the seven-year tribulation, that temple will be destroyed. And then the Lord will build the millennial temple. And it will be the most glorious of all because he will be in it, in person. All right, so let's look at this 70 weeks here. What's the key to all of this? The 70 weeks, what are these 70 weeks? Huh? In your notes, the 70 weeks are not weeks of days. They're weeks of years. Weeks of years. The term here for weeks is Shavua. In Hebrew, uh, it doesn't mean weeks like you and I think of weeks necessarily. It literally means sevens. Seventy sevens. You, might, you could call this Daniel's 77s prophecy. All right? So it's seven of really anything is what it means. Shavuot is a feast of Israel, okay? Uh, it's also called the Feast of Weeks. In English, all right? Commemorates the, the wheat harvest. Uh, there are seven weeks, there's a period of seven weeks after Passover where they harvest the wheat. But there's kind of a dual significance to this feast because it also commemorates the giving of the Torah, the giving of the law. When did that happen? Well, Moses comes down from Sinai, you know, with the stone tablets. What does he find when he gets back to the camp? Well, all the people are engaged in a veritable orgy of idolatry. Worshipping a golden calf. Wrath of God, anger of God consumes Moses. He throws those tablets, shatters them, commands his Levites to go draw swords and kill the idolaters. And what we learn in Exodus at the giving of the law, 3,000 people lost their life. So in, in his epistles, Paul writes, he says, you know, he's comparing law in the new covenant of grace, the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And he says, uh, the letter, that's the law, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Well, do you know what the Greek word for Shavuot is? Pentecost. Pentecost. See, that's what they were celebrating. When you and I think of Pentecost, we think of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we should. But that's not what the Jews were in town for. 
The Jews were in town on that day because it was Shavuot, and they were commemorating the giving of the law. Well, how many people died when the law was given? 3,000. So on, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter's out there preaching away. The people hear the gospel. How many get saved to new life? 3,000 souls were saved and baptized that day. Now, is that a coincidence? I don't know, but it's a pretty stinking cool contrast between the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. Amen? So, weeks, all that to say, weeks, seven, Shavuot, back to Daniel. Uh, how, How do we know this is weeks of days? We know it's sevens, but how do we know it's seven day? Uh, or not days, not weeks of years, rather. How do we know it's weeks of years? Well, the first reason in your notes is Daniel's state of mind. Daniel's state of mind. Daniel's already thinking in terms of years. Uh, verse 2, he's talking about the 70 years that they're supposed to be in, uh, in uh, bondage. So his mind is on years. Uh, he's saying, you know, Lord, 70 years, it's going to be over. God's like, mm, 70 times 7 is the big deal. Yeah, you're going to get out of here. You're going to go back to the land. But no, no, I want you to focus on these 70 sevens, 77-year periods. i got a bigger plan in store. But we, we see Daniel's state of mind here. And then the second reason it's weeks of years in your notes is the precedent of the concept in Jewish thought. The Jews... They understood this whole thing about seven-year periods. It was, it was familiar to them. Uh, in Leviticus, I'll show you in Leviticus 25, there's this concept of the Sabbath rest of the land. Okay, a Sabbath year. It says, for six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and uh, gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Basically, you're going to work for six years, and then you're going to take a year off. Well, that sounds great. Don't you wish your job worked like that? You think you could talk your boss into that? Hey, I got an idea. What if I work for six years? I'll work hard. And then that seventh year, I'll just, you know, I'll just take it easy. This is what God decreed. And so they understood this concept of a Sabbath year. And by the way, every 49th year, there was the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee uh, was that the land would rest. The land would rest, and then all of the estates were returned to their original owners. All debts were forgiven. All slaves went free. That's, That's a pretty good year right there, the year of Jubilee. All right, so they had this concept down. Then in your notes, you've got Daniel's use of the word. His use of the word. So he uses Shavuah here in chapter 9. In chapter 10, he uses the same word, Shavuah, but he accompanies it with another word. And it's all based on the context. So Daniel 10, 2 and 3, the next chapter, he says, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. And that word full in the Hebrew there is yom. Yom. You know what yom means? It means day. It means day. Now, it can mean a longer period of time. uh, But when there's a number associated with it, it's a 24-hour day. And so these are yom Shavuot, they're day weeks, they're yom weeks, they're weeks of days. You don't have yom in chapter 9. 
So it's as if to say, these are not Yom weeks in chapter 9. These, is, these are different kinds of weeks, and they're weeks of years. And then another reason to think that these are weeks of years in your notes is the violation of the Sabbath year. Uh, God, Daniel knew that God was judging Israel in part for their violation of that Sabbath year. They were instructed, you know, work for six, rest for one. Give the land a rest. Uh, why was he asking them to do that, you might wonder. Well, he wanted them to trust him. I want you to rely on me. I will provide for you. Did they obey? They did not. They kept working. They kept working the land. Why? They didn't trust God. They were driven by fear. They were driven by greed. They were driven by materialism, self-indulgence, hoard their money, whatever. So God wants to give the land its proper Sabbath rest. They won't let it rest. So God says, okay, I'll empty you from the land and I'll give the land it's rest. Okay? Second Chronicles says this, verse 21 of chapter 36. This is to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath. To fulfill how long? 70 years. How long are they in captivity? 70 years. Would God put them in captivity just to give the land a rest? Yeah. Not because of the land, but because God values his decrees. When God makes a decree, he wants it to have meaning. And when his people, who are called by his name, disobey it, there's got to be justice. And so how many Sabbaths have the children of Israel violated? Seventy. Seventy Sabbath years. How long would it take to violate that many Sabbath years? Uh, every Sabbath year. So that's every seventh year. So that's 490 years they had violated the Sabbath year. Which means they got to pay up 70 years to meet God's decree. All right? So these are weeks of years. They're not indefinite periods of time. Now, how long are these years? How many days in a year? 365. Some of you are like, are we going to get into numbers and math here? Yes. Yes, and I'm not a math guy, okay? So I suffer with you on this, but I, this will blow your mind, okay? Now, we say there's 365 days in a year in the Western Hemisphere, okay? In ancient Israel, they functioned on a 360-day calendar, okay? So this prophecy is based on that. And uh, uh, follow me here. According to Genesis, so I want you to think about the flood, you're like, we're going to the flood? Yeah, stay with me. Genesis 7-11, which, by the way, sounds like the convenience store in Noah's day. Uh, I'm a dad. I can't help it. It's a disease. It says in Genesis 7-11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So the flood starts when? On the 17th day of the second month. In Genesis 8, the waters start to recede, right? So it says, verse 3, at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. All right? So, so the flood starts 17th day of the second month. The waters abate 17th day of the seventh month. So if the flood started on the 17th day of the second month and ended on the 17th day of the seventh month, how many months is that? Five months. Five months. How many days did he say? 150 days. 
So for 150 days to break into five months, how many days per month is that? That's 30 days per month. Multiply that by 12. How many days is that? It's 360 days. So 12 30-day months is 360 days. You with me? So this is, this is the calendar that the Jews functioned on. 360. How many degrees in a circle? Oh, never mind. Anyway. So we read, if you recall Daniel 7, we read about the Antichrist in, in verse 25. And, you know, he shall speak words against the Most High, change the times in the law. They should be given in his hand. How long? For time, times, and half a time. So we said that's how long? Three, time is a year. So time, times, and half a time. So three and a half years. So that's half the tribulation. We call that the Great Tribulation period. Three and a half years. Revelation 13.5 talks about Antichrist. Same context. says, And the beast, that's Antichrist, was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? 42 months. Same period of time, different way to describe that period. You got three and a half years in Daniel. You got 42 months in Revelation. Same stretch of time. Now, Revelation 12, 6 says this, talking about Israel. And here's where you got some symbolism. Israel's seen as a woman. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for how long? 1,260 days. Same stretch of time. This is the last half of the tribulation period, the great tribulation. So you got three different time periods for the great tribulation. Three and a half years equals 42 months. For 42 months to equal 1,260 days, they have to be months of 30 days each. Okay? Why are you saying all this, Pastor Scott? To show you that the Bible is consistent. Measurements are consistent. So in your notes, for all biblical references about the duration of the Great Tribulation to match, they must be based on 30-day months. They must be. So we're in, also in your notes, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is counting on the same kind of clock. The same kind of clock. And by the way, this goes for all kinds of measurements. It's just consistent throughout. It is marvelous. I mean, you look at Old Testament measurements, and then you go to Revelation, and you read about the New Jerusalem, and you look at the dimensions of that city, and it is consistent. It's really something. All right. So where did this period begin that Daniel's talking about right here? If we figure out when it begins, then we can maybe determine when it ends. All right? So we're using this, this prophetic calendar. Uh, I typically teach, as many of you know, out of the ESV. I make a couple of exceptions. And one of them is Daniel 9.25. Let me show you how the ESV, the English Standard Version, renders Daniel 9.25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Now I don't care for that translation. Here's why. Because we're talking about the length of time between two points. Point one is the going out of the decree to restore Jerusalem. Okay? 
So whatever decree that is by Cyrus or whoever to rebuild the city, from that point to the, the, what is called the coming of an anointed one, a prince, all right? What is that referring to? That, my friends, is the presentation of Messiah. That, that is the presentation of Messiah. So how long is that period of time according to what I just read? Seven weeks. So if these are weeks of years, how long is seven weeks? How many years is that? 49 years. So from the coming, from the decree to rebuild the city to the presentation of Messiah, is that 49 years? Does Jesus come 49 years after Cyrus says rebuild the city, which happened right after Daniel read from the book of Jeremiah? No. No, Jesus didn't come for a long time after that. Centuries even. So this is a bad translation right here. Let me show you what the New King James says. Same verse. It says it this way. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. I like this translation better already. This is already more clear. How long? He says there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay? There's no period after seven weeks. He puts them into one sentence. You got seven and 62. So it breaks it down. That's better. And then he says, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So, 70 weeks. Gabriel lays it out for Daniel in sections here. So in your notes here, you've got seven weeks and 62 weeks, totaling how many weeks? 69 weeks. You've got 69 weeks. Now there's 70 total. Okay, there's 70 total. But for now, we're looking at the first 69 what is the final week? That final seven years. Hey, hey, what's an end time period that lasts seven years? The tribulation. So what is that? It's the 70th week of Daniel. We're going to look at that next week. But right now we're looking at the first 69. Okay, so, but if you, if you look at uh, 69 weeks, how many years is that? Anybody good with math? I've already done it for you. It's 483 years. 483 years. So, when does the period of 69 weeks begin? It begins with the command to rebuild the city. From the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, okay? So what is that? That is a historic edict. It is a, it's a command from somebody. Who did Isaiah say it would be? Cyrus. Cyrus. Now when does this period of 69 weeks end? Well, in your notes it ends with the presentation of Messiah. The presentation of Messiah. The way that it writes it, it says the coming of an anointed one, a prince, all right? Now, let me ask you, what event would classify as the presentation of Messiah? Are we talking about the birth of Christ? No, he wasn't presented. Nobody recognized him in mass, maybe a handful of people. Uh, we talking about a, a specific miracle of Christ where that happened? Not, not really. When did the people proclaim him Messiah and wave palm branches and all that stuff? Palm Sunday. What do we call that? The triumphal entry, right, into Jerusalem. Jesus on the back of an unridden colt. They're waving, the, they're shouting Hosanna. That is when his hour had come, right, that whole week leading up to Calvary. That's what we're talking about. So two historic events, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, 
and the triumphal entry. So if we can know with certainty the date of the decree, uh, then we can, we can determine some things. And, and in some fashion, we already know it starts with Cyrus. It starts with Cyrus. Now that should be cl- pretty clear. We should be able to find that date. The only problem is there were like four of those decrees. And three of them are mentioned in Scripture. One is by Cyrus. Two is by uh, a successor of his named Artaxerxes. Now, we already read Second Chronicles where Cyrus says, uh, I will make a house for Yahweh, okay? The date of that particular decree uh, is, is too early. It was 538 B.C. So uh, it really didn't mention anything about rebuilding the totality of the city. It talked about the temple. It did not talk about the city. And so that date doesn't get us. When we add 483 years to that, it does not get us to the presentation of Jesus. In fact, it's 93 years short of the year Christ died. Wrong decree. Now, it did start under Cyrus, but Cyrus died eventually. That decree carries on. So the decree is simply incomplete. It began under Cyrus. It's incomplete. It's going to be picked up by one of his successors. And so I want you to look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you know who Nehemiah is, Nehemiah is the Jewish cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is a successor to Cyrus. And uh, the context here is that Cyrus, or excuse me, Artaxerxes looks over at his Jewish cupbearer and he notices Nehemiah's got the sads. He's, he's, He's looking glum and so he inquires and here's what Nehemiah says. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place... Of my father's graves lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? Nehemiah's heart must have skipped three beats right there. Folks, this is the formal decree to rebuild Jerusalem right here. So it pleased the king to send me when I give him a time. So this is the decree. So we just got to attach a date to this. And so in your notes, the specific decree is the second edict of Artaxerxes. He made two. This is the second. This meets the criteria. This puts us on the timeline to get to Jesus. So the fulfillment began under Cyrus. It continues under Artaxerxes. Now, the last decree in history, in, in, historically, that we can point to by Artaxerxes is in 445 B.C. All right? In the month of Nisan. Uh, that would be the second year of his reign. Year of a king's reign started uh, the first of the month. So Nisan first, 445 B.C. For us, that translates to March 14th. 445 B.C. We got a date. All right? Now we can begin to calculate. This prophecy starts March 14th, 445 B.C. From there, we got to go 483 years. That's 69 weeks of years to get to the presentation of Messiah. Now we go back to Daniel 9. There should be seven weeks and 62 weeks in between that decree and the presentation of an anointed one. 
the coming of Messiah. So are you curious why he phrases it that way? Seven weeks and 62 weeks? Why did he just say 69 weeks? Because seven weeks, how many years is that? 49 years. What happened in the first 49 years? A couple of significant things. First of all, in your notes, you had the rebuilding of the city that was completed. Okay? That happened in uh, uh, 396 B.C. Jerusalem was completed. We could point to that in history. The other thing that was significant in your notes is that the Old Testament canon was completed. The last word of the Old Testament was put down on the paper in 396 B.C. So those are two pretty significant things. It's like God establishes his people in the land. He establishes his city. He establishes his temple. He establishes his word. And we're going to start the clock from there. Now, what happens over the next 62 weeks? Well, if you want to jot this down, you're welcome to. Otherwise, you can listen and nod along and pretend that you understand what I'm saying. Now, you take the whole number of 483, 483 years, you got 69 weeks. That's 69 times 7, 483. How many days is that? 483 times 360, according to the Jewish calendar. Okay, that's, if this is kind of an interesting number, and we'll have it on the screen, it's 173,880 days. Okay, that means... That from the decree by Artaxerxes to rebuild that city to the presentation of Jesus at the triumphal entry, there must be 173,880 days. For this prophecy to be of God and to work, we got to hit that number. we got to hit that number. Okay? If Daniel had known when the decree to rebuild the city would be given, and he didn't, then he could have pinpointed when the Messiah would be presented to the very day. So the actual day of the decree, March 14th, 445, this has got to match. Got to match. There's a British scholar named Robert Anderson. He worked for Scotland Yard, and he made it his life's study, this, this area of prophecy. And he holds that the actual day of the triumphal entry was April 6th, A.D. 32. A.D. 32. That factors in the Jewish calendar, new moons, 360-day years, the whole nine yards. If this prophecy is of God and it's going to work, then we got to have that 173.880 in between those two times. So we're looking for total accuracy here. So the figures that we've got, there are 477 years and 24 days between those two dates. Is that a match? That's not, that's not a match. We, we need, we need uh, 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 let's see. Oh, we got to deduct one year. Do you know why? Why would you have to deduct one year between those dates? Well, because, <laughs> because 1 BC and 1 AD are the same year. They're the same year. So you take one away. Oh, well, we're getting farther away by one year. 476 years, 24 days. Okay, so how many days is that? We're looking for 173,880. 476 years comes to 173,740. Well, that's not a match. What are we trying to get to? 173,880. 
How do we get there? Well, oh, we got to add the 24 days back in. So let's do that. So now, if you're keeping track, we're at 173,764 days. Ah, we're looking for 173,880, and we're at 173,764. We're shy. We're short. You say, Pastor, that's close. God doesn't do close. God does perfect. This is perfection that we're looking for. Now, hold on a second here. What's every four years? A leap year. What does that mean? That means you get an extra day every leap year. So four divided into 476, that's 119 leap years. That's 119 extra days. So you add 119 days to 173,764, you got 173,883. We're over. Come on, we got three extra days. Stand by. In his research, Robert Anderson, whom I have cited, determined that there was a slight inaccuracy in the Julian calendar. It didn't quite fit the solar year. And in fact, the figures of the Royal Observatory in London indicate that each year came out to be one one hundred and twenty-eighth of a day too long for a total of three days. Three days. So you divide 128 into 476, you get about three days. You subtract three days from 173,883, you got 173,880. God is accurate. He's not close. He's bang on. Okay. What does that tell us in your notes? The prophecy concerning the 62 weeks that follows those first seven weeks speaks to the precision of God's word. And no wonder in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, verse 10, he says, I make known the end from the beginning. (laughs) From ancient times, what is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please says Jehovah God. So God tells Daniel, through his angel Gabriel, the very day that Jesus would ride that donkey into Jerusalem, where the people would say, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of David, the Messiah. (laughs) But it wouldn't last long, would it? One week, and it's a week of days that that fervor would last. Because look at the very next verse in Daniel 9, verse 26. After the 62 weeks, what happens to that anointed one, the prince? An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The fickleness of mankind. And it's all part of prophecy. This is part one of the 70 weeks. Once upon a time, I was going to cram the 70 weeks study into one night. You're like, my head is swimming, Pastor Scott. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right? Hey, listen, as we go through this, questions might occur to you. Okay? And uh, if that is the case, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap this study up in a few weeks, and then the unofficial week nine is going to be another Q&A like we have done. It's going to be a prophecy Q&A. 
So any prophecy-related question, any end times, eschatology-type question, uh, or something that you feel is relevant to what we've talked about, uh, you can send those. And we've got an email, I believe. There it is. Uh, if you can't read that, it's questions at thelambschapel.org. There you go. You can remember that. Questions at thelambschapel.org. And we're going to have some fun with that. I'll get, I'll get Billy G up here, and he and I will banter a little bit about, about God's word. But, uh, hey, thank you so much. You did good. Good job. Good job. All right. We did it. We got through the numbers together. No more math for the week, okay? Everybody go home and watch something stupid on TV. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time uh, the rest of this week as we serve you. And may prophecy have the proper impact on us, God, as it did with Daniel, to drive us to a place of prayer, of repentance, of seeking your face, God. And we study your word to understand the times. And we know that we can because you gave us that word and it was not for no reason. And we trust you uh, with, with how that is applied in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.